Hello, I'm Joe Honeyhockey, and welcome to the Heavenly Social, where I introduce you to our heavenly brothers and sisters. Oh, it feels so wonderful to be back. The last year has been quite a ride. A ride I'll share whenever relevant. But in short, I broadened my experiences. And some of these experiences were narrating audiobooks. Such as Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence, published by Tan Books. You can check that one out, and others, on Audible. Now, I also went through a rather dramatic career change, which uh, took up a lot of my time. But uh, I'll share more about that you know, as, as that becomes more relevant. But, these experiences pale in comparison to the saint I'll be talking about today. So, I ask you, do you have a wide array of interests? Are you a woman looking for a model of courage and boldness? Then may I introduce you to Saint Hildegard of Bingen. Rule intro. Let's get back into the swing of things and take a look at St. Hildegard's patronages. Turns out she doesn't really have any. I've, I found some sources that um, put her as a patron saint of writers and um, whatnot, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like she has anything super hard set. But she does have something very special and very rare. She bears the title of Doctor of the Church. She's one of 36 others who bear this title, and she's one of only four women. Now, I've covered two of these doctors before, St. Anthony of Padua and St. Albert the Great. But as it's been some time, here's a quick refresher on what it means to be a doctor of the church. The church declares someone a doctor, if they have made a significant contribution to doctrine or theology. Now, this doesn't mean these individuals were the smartest in all the land, though some of them quite likely were. When we look at, like, St. Therese of Lisieux, who is one of these doctors, her writings are very simple, radically simple, one might say, and they are immersed in the heart of the gospel. There have been scores of smart people in history who have written quite profoundly about Jesus and our faith in him, but these individuals we call doctors were so devoted to him and his love for souls that through them Jesus has shown us all ways we can more deeply love and adore him. That, I believe, is the heart of what we mean by a significant contribution and why these doctors are pretty cool people. Now with that said, let's learn about Hildegard. Saint Hildegard of Bingen was born in 1098 in Bockelheim, in what is now Germany. She was born of nobility, the youngest of ten children. She received a pretty good education, and it seemed she even had a, a proclivity toward the religious life. 
Well, during her formative years, she was instructed by Blessed Jutta of Diesenberg, a.k.a. Jutta von Sponheim. Now, Blessed Jutta was a Benedictine nun who lived in solitude as an anchorite at the Diesenbodenberg Monastery. Now, she ended up instructing Hildegard in the ways of chant and the liturgy of the hours. Uh, she was very much more than just an instructor. She was a mentor to Hildegard. And her life of asceticism greatly influenced Hildegard. Um, not necessarily to go as far as to live an ascetic life, but very much to practice moderation. Now, Blessed Yuda died in 1136, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but Hildegard then ended up succeeding her. But, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, it's widely accepted that Hildegard took her religious vows because if you didn't quite catch on, uh, yes, Hildegard joined the monastery. So, it is widely accepted that Hildegard took her religious vows at the Diesbodenberg Monastery on November the 1st of 1112, when she was 14 years old. Now, from very early on, she experienced religious visions, uh, religions about heavenly things, about Jesus and saints and all of these wonderful, uh, incredible things. But she kept them all to herself until the age of 43, when she revealed them to her confessor. And now that's that's got to take quite a bit of discipline to hold on to that for so many years. Well, her confessor then reported these visions to the Archbishop of Mainz, and this Archbishop then had a committee formed to examine the authenticity of the visions. Uh, they were determined to be authentic, and then a monk was assigned to her to record them. Now, this work uh, eventually became known as the Sivius, it was written from the year 1141 to being published in 1152. And in it, it contains 26 visions. And you can go check this out. It's a, it's a book that you can buy. and um, Pretty neat. Well, Hildegard left Diesel Bodenberg in 1147, where she then founded a convent at Rupertsburg. Now, during her time here, uh, she continued on with her work, her studies, and uh, recording these visions. Well, she, she collected 77 lyrical poems, uh, which would then be accompanied by music composed by her in a work titled Symphonia Harmoniae Celestium Revelationum. <laughs> she also invented her own language called the Literae Ignote. If you can't tell, 
I'm not exactly well learned in Latin, but I try my best. <laughs> now, using this language that she made up, she wrote a book called Lingua Ignota, Unknown Language. I don't really know much more about it, other than it was written in her language that she made up. <laughs> now, around 1152, she actually went on a preaching tour around Germany, and from what I could tell, she went on a total of four preaching tours from between that year, 1152, and 1162. Now, this was very strange for a woman to do at the time, and I, I think it just attests to her rhetorical abilities. She was a, clearly an, an engaging speaker, because during that time, it's not like women were really allowed to preach, or um, at least not in the public sphere. She preached publicly in, in areas where, um, yeah, women just couldn't really do that, or they were uh, confined even in social manners. So that, uh, yeah, that, that was just phenomenal. And uh, I think one reason why she's uh, so well-liked today, <laughs> just as a, a, a feminine figure for the time. But what she did during these preaching tours was uh, instruct based on the inspirations of the Holy Spirit that, that she was given. Uh, she also spent plenty of time calling out corruption in the clergy and called for reform. Another incredibly bold thing uh, for a woman to do at the time. I think one reason why, among many, that she was kind of allowed to... to be so bold in the public sphere, uh, is that she had the attention of some pretty powerful people. I mean, she was in correspondence. She would write letters to the popes at the time, and uh, emperors like Frederick Barbarossa. Um, she was also in contact with Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, and all of these men promoted her works. They, they encouraged people to read what she was putting forth. From everything that I've gathered, uh, she was not afraid to, to call people out on their nonsense. <laughs> and uh, it was very much needed. I mean, it's always needed. But, uh, yeah, it's, it was phenomenal. Now, on top of all of her religious work, uh, she's also known for her contributions to the sciences and um, the, the medical field. Because as a nun, she worked with the sick. Uh, the, the convent uh, worked like a hospital. And what she did is she actually recorded a lot of her observations. She, um, she wrote down what worked, what didn't, based on... Uh, what disease she was being faced with. And something that's really neat is that she never claimed that any of the scientific or medicinal 
uh, works or her understanding of these things were divinely inspired. She didn't, you know, come out and say, oh, the Lord revealed this to be true to me. No, she she very much practiced what we now know as the scientific method and simply just recorded uh, her observations. And uh, that has since become very valuable. I mean, yes, the medically, it's not like she, she discovered anything groundbreaking or uh, it's not like uh, her medicinal practices are used anymore because they involved leeches and, you know, many other uh, medieval remedies. But it's really cool from an academic standpoint because it gives historians a look into medieval medicine. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of sources that record the medical processes in quite as much detail as, as what she presented. So just from a historical perspective, uh, it's, it's a goldmine, frankly. Now, with the science and medicine, she wrote two books, or well, there, there are two works. Uh, the first one is called The Physica, uh, which is a collection of nine books describing the scientific and medicinal properties of plants, stones, fish, reptiles, and animals. And just going back to her observations. And the second work is Cause et Cure, also known as Causes and Cures, and that is her exploration of the human body. And again, just the knowledge and experience that she collected during her time working on the sick and the injured. Now, towards the end of her life, and if you really look at it, she didn't get particularly active until later in her life, until she was, you know, in her 40s. Well, she ended up, well, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Anyways, towards the last year of her life, uh, it turns out she ran into some difficulties. Uh, again, just with her history of not being afraid to butt heads when needed. Well, a man had been excommunicated from the church, and he had been allowed to be buried in the convent cemetery. Now, the reason for this is because Hildegard believed that he had reconciled with the church uh, because he had received last rites. And yeah, her, her reasoning was very sound there, and she was willing to fight for this man who she knew in her heart to have uh, returned to communion with the church. Well, the bishop, in, in retaliation for this, because Hildegard refused to budge, what he was wanting is he was wanting this man to be uh, excavated from, from the cemetery and buried elsewhere, buried not on church grounds. Well, she wasn't about to let that happen. In retaliation, the bishop uh, placed an interdict which forbade the Eucharist from being served at the convent while the man's body rested there. And they, it seemed like there, there was a pretty nasty just back and forth for many months. And I've, I saw some conflicting things on whether or not the, this interdiction was 
uh, lifted before her death or after her death, uh, but it all seems to, to be right around when she died, uh, which would have been September 17th of 1179. So she would have been 81. And uh, yeah, she fought for for this until the very end, and eventually she won. Her, her fight was worth it, and the, the man uh, was able to remain buried in the cemetery, and the Eucharist was brought back to the convent. Now, she was beatified on August 26th of 1326 by Pope John XXII, and she was canonized a saint on May 10th of 2012. Now, she wasn't canonized in the normal way, uh, meaning like bringing forth uh, two documented miracles and then uh, having the debate and uh, the whole long process. Don't get me wrong, I mean, hers was a long process if you just look back at those dates. But she was canonized with something called equivalent canonization. So there, there's a little bit less of a ceremony with that, and it, uh, uh, it's really just the Pope signing a decree declaring this person a saint. Now, there's a few rules that come with using this. Uh, there's three, actually. The first is the existence of a cult of devotion, meaning that uh, there has to be a wide group of people, especially locally, uh, a wide group of people who have devoted themselves to this saint, who uh, go to this saint for intercession. They, they pray and um, ask for prayers from this saint. The second rule is constant attestation to the virtues of the person by credible historians. So this, this person can't simply exist by word of mouth. You know, there has to be credible sources to say that, yes, this person lived the life that uh, is being proclaimed and taught, uh, which we have very much plenty of when it comes to Hildegard. And then we have to have an uninterrupted fame as a miracle worker, uh, meaning that it has to be pretty widely known, accepted, that... Uh, the intercession of this person has brought about miracles. Uh, so with all of those three things, uh, the Pope can use or, you know, invoke uh, equivalent, equivalent canonization and declare the person a saint, which is what happened. And there, there's a number of saints that um, has has gone through this. Uh, St. Peter Faber was canonized in this fashion, who I, I did an episode on him some time ago. <laughs> so with that, you, you kind of get the idea of St. Hildegard's life. Now, when I reflect with St. Hildegard, the virtue that had kept coming to me was her fortitude, her courage, her boldness. She saw people in their totality as hybrid creatures composed of body and soul. And she was blessed by God with the ability to administer to both of these aspects of our nature as a religious sister and as somebody who uh, medically took care of people. 
Her work in the medicinal practices and scientific reasoning, as rudimentary as it may have been, catered to the body, and the hymns and visions that she shared uh, rejuvenated the soul. I should stress again that we exist as body and soul, united together. We are hybrid creatures. Hence, how we attend to one side of these, of our being, it affects the other, which is why it can feel extraordinarily burdensome to practice our faith when we aren't taking care of our bodies, and vice versa. Our bodies feel a toll when we waltz around in sin. My point here is that faith and science are necessary if we are to understand our whole personhood, and if they are both necessary, then they both certainly can't be contradictory. We hold up saints, like Hildegard, because she demonstrates brilliantly this understanding. Yes, she is a church doctor because of her contributions to our faith. She wasn't the greatest scientist in the world. In fact, the scientific method hadn't even formally been developed or proposed. But I think that only further lends credence to the reality that our yearning for knowledge of the physical world or phrased differently, our scientific longing, is something written on our hearts by God, because we can better understand ourselves. I heard it said that regarding the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful, that we don't perfectly know these things, but we know enough to long for them. We know there is a perfect and objective truth, the perfect good, and the perfectly beautiful, and because the taste for these things are placed on our hearts from conception, we live in this world with the intense longing to find these things in their perfection. We as individuals, and we as a community of persons, will never stop. I find this beautiful, that we profess an infinite God in whom we find perfect truth, goodness, and beauty, though as we cannot on this earth perfectly know him thanks to our imperfect nature, we get to spend our lives discovering him through our experiences of the true, the good, and the beautiful. I find the sciences as a great way to put God into perspective. We live in such an immense universe that I'm quite confident in saying that the sciences will always have something new to investigate. If there is still so much that is quantifiable, measurable, that remains unknown, not even considering all of the things that we don't realize we don't know, then how could we possibly be so confident in our knowledge of an infinite God, the one who created all these things, that we simply write him off as an afterthought? It's a reality that we get to spend the entirety of our lives learning who God is in a personal way. Far easier said than done. Society at large may not care in the slightest either. If we then truly profess a perfectly true, good, and beautiful God or rather believes in a perfectly true, good, and beautiful God, then wouldn't we want to tell everyone? 
There's a common phrase to describe our faith, which is that it's personal, not private. I'm not typically a fan of basic little phrases like that to begin with, but I do really like to focus on that key word, personal. It's a common fear in evangelizing to be written off as preachy, or to be faced with the retort, don't force your beliefs on me. And, frankly, being preachy can be a valid complaint. I might go so far as to say it's usually a valid complaint. Why I like the phrase personal, not private, is because it isn't merely telling us to share the faith, but that to do so, we must absolutely have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's literally what our faith is. It's not a book. It's not a set of rules. It's a personal relationship with the creator of all good things. If we don't have that relationship, then the book, the rules, it's all empty. And we can come off as hateful and forceful, and ultimately we push people away. For the record, the rules, the tradition, the books are all incredible gifts and very necessary to grow in that relationship with God. My point is simply that their importance and meaning come from this relationship. His goodness and truth and beauty are reflected in these things. So if we ourselves want to be good mirrors of his love, then we kind of need to face him. All of this brings me then back to Hildegard. You see, she was a woman. A woman in a time where women weren't particularly respected, most especially when it came to intellectual matters. Did this stop her? Not at all. You see, she spent her life dedicated to the Lord and serving people for love of Him. She rested on the foundation of her personal relationship with Him, and in doing so, was driven by an internal flame to share all these things that she knew and those things being revealed to her. When faced with the true, the good, and the beautiful, she knew her only course of action was to share with others. And so she did. Regardless of the difficulty, regardless of what others might think, she knew that what was within her heart, what God had placed in her care, was worth sharing. Why? Because God desires us all uniquely. He longs for us. Two hearts will long for one another. We long for our Creator and He for His creation. Hildegard did everything in her power to stir the hearts of her fellow man into action, if for nothing else but to bring more souls peace through union with God. Pope Benedict XVI said, Let us always invoke the Holy Spirit, so that he may inspire in the Church holy and courageous women like St. Hildegard of Bingen, who, developing the gifts they have received from God, make their own special and valuable contribution to the spiritual development of our communities, and of the Church in our time. End quote. 
We have all been made uniquely and lovingly by our Heavenly Father. Let us take to heart the words of Pope Benedict and surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, that our unique little quirks might be used for the glory of God, especially you ladies. You are valuable, and you are needed. The redemption of the world. Our Savior, the very word of God, came to us through a woman, Mary. So if you ever find yourself in fear or doubt, turn to her. Turn to Hildegard. Turn to any one of our most wonderful sisters in heaven, and you will find what you are looking for. As a man, I really hope you do, because, please, for the love of all that is good in this world, we men need you. If we all want to experience heaven together as great saints, then we need each other. It's a team effort. Sometimes we gotta be each other's strength. So ladies, follow the example of St. Hildegard. Follow the example of Mary. And take courage, knowing that the Lord is always with you. That does it for this episode. Again, sorry for the break. But, stay bold, be courageous, and one day someone might just tell your story. And outro. We have all been made uniquely and lovingly by Symphonia Harmoniae Celestium Revelationum. The Revelationum. Oh my. I don't know about you fellows out there, but I sure hope and strive to be a good man. That's a miracle I pray for every day. Next time... Let's learn about a saint who has inspired that prayer of mine. See ya!